0: So I have a little assignment for you that might seem like a weird assignment at first, but we have five bodily senses, Uh, touching, tasting, hearing, smelling, and seeing. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what your favorite sense is out of the five, which one do you enjoy the most and tell them why. Your sense of touch, taste, hearing, smelling, or seeing. Which is your favorite bodily sense and why? It would be very fascinating right now if, by show of hands, I went through each one and we saw which were the more popular ones. Uh, Feeling warm clothes, fresh out of the dryer, pressed against your face, that is good. Tasting hot apple pie with vanilla ice cream melting on top of it, that is good. Listening to children play and splash in the ocean, that is good. Smelling the fragrance of a real Christmas tree, that's good. Watching the oranges and reds and yellows of a sunset is good. Touching, tasting, hearing, smelling, and seeing. There are five bodily senses, and they are good. Just think of how much we would be deprived of if we didn't have bodies. The first time the word good appears in the Bible is in the fourth verse. Pastor Jerry read it earlier, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. We read of God creating light, and it says, God saw that the light... Was good. In fact, in the first chapter of the Bible, this word good is then, after this verse, used six more times. It's good. It's good. And then, as a way of encapsulating the whole chapter, it ends by saying, Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. God created the oceans and the land. It was good. God created plants and seeds. And it was good. God filled the seas with fish and the air with birds. And it was good. God created animals to spread all over the land of every different kind and species. And it was good. That's Genesis chapter 1 The opening chapter of the Bible is an attack on any idea or any views that God's creation is somehow bad or an illusion. The first book of the first chapter of the Bible is an attack on any gnostic or spiritualistic or buddhist or mystic Or even any revivalist theology that teaches us that humanity's goal is to escape a bad creation. The yearly celebration of Christmas should guard us against that. As a reminder, every single time that we have Christmas, it should remind us of any or or protect us from any kind of escapist readings when it comes to the Bible. Uh, but sadly, it doesn't always do that. Instead, our Christmases become equally escapist, especially when we throw in Santa and the elves and the reindeer alongside of a magical, no-crying-he-makes baby Jesus. It all becomes rather escapist. But the biblical story of Christmas is a story about the incarnation and if we uphold the incarnation of christmas we will stay away from any fairy tale notions and we will look at reality and that's what we're going to be that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is looking at the implications of the incarnation the philosophers often talked about reality as being true Good and beautiful. And so we're going to look over the next three weeks at how the incarnation is true, how the incarnation is good, and how the incarnation is beautiful. And we're going to start today by looking at the goodness of the incarnation. Now, in order to give a definition of what incarnation means, the incarnation means to become embodied in flesh. Or in other words, to take on human nature. It's what we read about at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word became flesh, became human, and made his home among us. See, the Christmas is about the incarnation. It's about the Word of God becoming flesh human in Jesus. The incarnation is not a story of God helping us escape the created physical creation. Instead, the story of the Bible is about God coming into and embracing His created physical creation. And understanding the implications of God's incarnation, that is, God becoming flesh, will, if we get it, affect everything that we look at. The way we read scripture, the way we interact with the world, the way we interact with one another. And so let me give you three, there's certainly many more, let me give you three this morning implications of the incarnation in regards to how it helps us understand the goodness of what God made. The first thing it shows us is that the incarnation shows us that to be human is to be embodied. This is something that is Often forgotten in escapist versions of Christianity, that to be human is to touch, it's to taste, it's to see, it's to hear, it's to smell. Humans are not merely thinking spirits. And even in order to think, you need a physical brain in order to do so. God could not have become human by just becoming a different spirit. Notice what it talks about. Spirit is not human. Humans are flesh and blood. They are not spirits who live inside flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. Certainly, we are more than flesh and blood, but humans are not less than flesh and blood. And therefore, for Jesus to have become human, He had to become enfleshed. If He wouldn't have become embodied, if He wouldn't have become infleshed, He would not have been human. Biology and DNA matter when it comes to being human. So, God Becoming human meant that he had to physically embrace biology, to physically take on DNA. If we could be human without flesh, there would be no reason for God to have become flesh. If God was merely trying to save our ghost, as if a ghost is human, from our bad flesh, why didn't God simply become a human ghost? And then go around and suck our human part out of our bad bodies with some cosmic vacuum cleaner. But no. God became human. And therefore, it means he became enfleshed. To exist without a body is not to be human. Human is in body. The denial of the body is to deny the incarnation as intrinsic to human beings. From the very beginning, versions of a false teaching have crept into the church that have said that Jesus only appeared to be a human, but wasn't one in reality. Or there have been other versions that have crept into the church, which I have popularized or I've heard it popularized as God in a bod. That Jesus really just went into a carcass. Jesus sort of entered into a body like me going into my car. I don't actually become a car when I do that. I just dwell inside a car. Some people have said that Jesus just dwelled inside of a body. But that's not what scripture says. And that wouldn't have been human. Jesus became body. Because to be embodied is to be human. Many false ideas of humanity and false ideas of Jesus were coming around right when the Gospels and the letters were being written, denying the enfleshment of God. And that's why even John in one of his letters said, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why would he even write that? He was writing that because there were many who were denying that. They were denying that Jesus was coming in the flesh. Some were saying that Jesus became human, but he didn't become flesh. But humanity is flesh. Every spirit that does not acknowledge this is not from God. To deny that Jesus became flesh is to deny That God became human. Because to be human means to have a body. The second thing we see from the incarnation is that the incarnation affirms the goodness of God's creation. We saw from Genesis 1 that God's creation is good. In fact, Genesis 1 says it's very good. Yes, Genesis 3 goes on to describe our rebellion against God. And because of that rebellion, and because God tasked us humans to be the caretakers of his creation, we read how our rebellion against God affected the creation. It affected us, it affected all of creation in a negative way. But that didn't turn God's creation into evil. It didn't turn God's creation into an illusion, It didn't turn God's creation into a prison. Take the body that's gotten sick as an example. If you're sick, your body is still good. If you're sick, you don't go see a doctor, and if you're sick, the doctor doesn't say, well, we should just throw your body away. No, what the doctor wants to do is get rid of the disease that's affecting the body. The body's good. You don't root out the body, you root out the disease so that the body can get better. Or take a church or a school that has a bad member in it or a bad teacher in it. Now, people like that can certainly corrupt a church, uh, certainly can be a very negative influence on a school, but the school's not bad, the church isn't bad. You don't get rid of the church, you don't get rid of the school, what you should do is get rid of the bad member, or the bad teacher, get rid of the problem. Now I realize these are analogies, and that they don't work perfectly, but something very similar is happening in the incarnation. God became human, which means he became flesh. God's incarnation in Jesus is a second creation story. It's another creation story of God saying, it is good, created all things good. Yes, through human rebellion, creation got sick, But in God's love for his creation, God didn't get rid of the creation but God embraced the creation. He came into the creation so that he could get rid of the disease and make it healthy once again. That's the biblical plan. The Christmas story is not God's escape plan from creation. The Christmas story is not that we need to escape from God's creation into a spirit world. The Christmas story is God's rescue plan for the restoration of his creation. If it wasn't God's rescue plan to restore his creation, why incarnation? Why become creation if it's just to get away from it? Again, this has become lost because of the popularity and the influence of A modern-day American rapture theology that has really distorted the church's thinking about all of this in the last hundred years or so within certain evangelistic and fundamentalist wings of the church that has incorrectly read the Bible with an escapist theology. But the focus there is in the wrong direction. It's not about leaving earth and going to heaven. It's about heaven coming down... And joining the earth. So that the two realms become one. And isn't that what we pray every single time we pray the Lord's Prayer? Isn't that what we're saying? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we do not pray, may we leave the earth so we can enter heaven. That's not what Jesus taught us to pray. He said, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the direction of our prayer. Not may we leave earth and go to heaven, but may heaven come to earth. And we see a glimpse of it. We see a foretaste of it already in the incarnation. God coming to earth in Christ and embodying his creation. God became his creation in Jesus. And by doing so, he proved that physical matter doesn't equal sin. Because when he became human, when he became enfleshed, there was no sin in him. Embodiment, bodies, physical matter are not sinful. Adam and Eve were physical beings created by God from the dust of the earth before sin ever entered the world. Adam and Eve weren't spirit beings and then as soon as they sinned, poof, they got a body. Oh, what happened? Oh, I guess that's my sinful carcass now. I made a bad choice and now I got a body. No, Adam and Eve were fully embodied beings prior to sin. They didn't become human after they sinned. That's why I never like the remark when people, um, they, they do something wrong and they say, well, I'm only human. No, Jesus was human. Adam and Eve were human before sin. Humanity does not equal sin. If you want to say, I guess I'm a diseased human, I guess I'm a fallen human, you might sound weird, but at least you're theologically correct. You fall because you're a diseased human. The redemption plan of God is to rescue you to be fully human again. And do you notice in God's rescue plan what is involved? It's called a resurrection. Why? Because bodies matter. If all you did is live on as some kind of ghost, you wouldn't be human. And so God becomes human by incarnating, taking on flesh. And then God saves us to become fully human once again. That means we will be embodied, we will be in flesh for all of eternity, but sin will be taken away. So we really are human once again, in the full sense of it. Because sin is a mar on our humanity. It's a sickness upon our humanity. Therefore, we don't sin because we're humans. We sin because we're diseased humans. And God's incarnation shows us what it looks like to be human without sin. He's the first fruits. We're going to follow in his footsteps. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be fully human because there was no sin in him. In that sense, we truly can say that Jesus was fully human. Listen to what Paul says. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Now notice how when we have the wrong glasses on, When we have the escapist glasses on, we can even take a verse as simple as this and misread it. I've had many people that have read this verse in a sloppy manner and read it as, We long to be released from our bodies. But look at it again. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul doesn't say, We long to be released from our bodies. No. He says, We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. He doesn't want to get rid of his body. He wants to get rid of the sin. It's even like when Paul talks about going from, from this stage to the resurrected stage. He, he talks about that in-between state as being naked, unclothed, and he says, I don't want to be unclothed. This, this false hope that some of us have to be free from our bodies, Paul says, I do not desire to be naked. I do not desire to shed this body to be naked, but I desire to be resurrected with my body restored. That's the hope. The hope is the resurrection, not disembodiment. We long to be released from sin and suffering. That is why Jesus became flesh and why the incarnation leads to bodily resurrection. Christianity is actually a very material Faith, very physical faith, even with God himself becoming physical. Jesus came to save us to be fully human, not to become non-human ghosts. Jesus rose bodily from the dead so that we could be embodied humans for all of eternity. And that means that we'll be able to taste, to touch, to see, to hear, to smell, And able to experience all those senses untainted by sin. Look at Jesus when he rose from the dead. In Luke 24, he comes, appears before the disciples after he rose from the dead in his his resurrected body. And he says, which I always think is such an understatement, why are you frightened? I'm like, because you just appeared in front of me, and I thought you died a few days ago. But anyway, he, why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? And then look what Jesus says. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it is really me. Touch me. And make sure that I am not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do, Jesus is, is saying, if we understand his words, not only is Jesus saying, I'm not a ghost, Jesus is saying, I'm a human. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. If I were a ghost, if I would have been, if I would have raised as a ghost, I wouldn't be a human standing in front of you, but I'm a human. I've been, I, I came, became a human, and I've raised as a human, and now I'm going to exist for all of eternity as a human being. Jesus is fully human now for all of eternity. Touch me. See that I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have bodies as you see I do. And as he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. They still stood in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it, and they watched. These aren't throwaway words. Why do they... Touch Jesus, look at him. eat fish in front of them. What's Jesus trying to do? Jesus saying, bodies matter. And in the resurrection, you can touch me. You can see me. I can eat. I'm human. And so is the promise to you. That you will be raised human. Because my physical creation is good. I've come to rescue it, not to take you from it. I wasn't raised spiritually. I was raised bodily. And to prove that, he relied on the physical senses sight, see my hands. Touch, touch my feet. Taste, let me taste some of that fish that you made. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the resurrected, fully human Jesus is exactly what it will look like when we become resurrected, fully human beings at the second coming. So the incarnation has huge implications. It shows us that to be human is to be embodied, and it also shows us that God's creation is good and that he's planning to rescue it and has already started the process Jesus in the Incarnation and has already started the process in the Resurrection. And my third point for this morning is that the Incarnation is the beginning of the restoration of all of God's physical creation. This is another part that gets forgotten in our escapist views of Bible reading. We are right to affirm the centrality of humanity in God's rescue plan. Humans were the pinnacle of God's creation. We were made in God's image, and the very first command that he gave us in the Bible was, govern and take care of my creation. In many ways, that goes right with being in the image of God. God is the ruler, he's the governor, you now will be my image, you now will be my ruler, my governor in my creation. You're my stamp in the creation. But sometimes we forget in our escapist readings what God's plan for us was. Just as Israel continually misunderstood her calling. Reducing it to meaning that salvation was for them. Salvation meant that we are now saved. And we're saved and God's going to get us out of here. Forgetting that Israel's calling was to, be, was to experience God's salvation so that they could bless others. It's the same way. In many ways, the church forgets God's calling today. For what God illustrated with Israel at a micro level is now happening in Christ at a macro level. And that is that our mandate to govern creation is now restored in Christ's incarnation and resurrection. Christ then restored humanity by becoming fully human. So we are not saved. Salvation is not for us Just so that we can get out of here. Pray a prayer, get saved, and then get out of here. That's Israel's mistake. We are saved like Israel. We have salvation like Israel to be a blessing to the creation. That's what salvation was all about. That's what God showed with Israel and that's what God showed in Christ and that's what he continues to do with his people. Salvation is for us to reclaim the image of God upon us, which means to be a blessing to God's creation, to govern it well, to work towards the restoring of God's creation. Once again, we pray in the Lord's prayer, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Our ego causes us to miss these themes, and they permeate throughout the Bible. But they're not the parts that we tend to highlight. The Bible is not simply about personal salvation. In fact, personal salvation can just be another form of selfishness. So I get this and this and this, and then I get all of that after. It's just all about me. Personal salvation can actually not change the heart towards greed and selfishness at all. But the scripture is not just about personal salvation. It's about being saved to bless God's creation. For it is not just we who await restoration. Paul writes in Romans, all of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are, who his image is. All of creation is waiting. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children. How have we missed that? It's not just God's children that are going to be saved. Creation looks forward to the day it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. All of creation is going to be saved from death and decay and it is eagerly waiting for that day. When God will not only resurrect humans, which means fully embodied beings, but he will resurrect his creation. A new heavens and a new earth, just like new bodies. It's resurrection. Thorough resurrection. And this theme is all throughout the Old Testament. Listen to how even the animals are going to be part of God's rescue plan. In Hosea, on that day, I will make a covenant with the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. What? God's made a covenant with the animals? I will remove all the weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so that you can live unafraid in peace and safety. On that day, even the animals, Joel says the same thing. Don't be afraid, you animals of the field, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. You will enter paradise too. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. God is promising a paradise of green pastures even for the animals. God's promises extend beyond promises to humans. It extends to all of creation. And we are saved as humans to begin to be that blessing to creation. How we treat animals matters. How we treat God's creation matters. It's very Christian. It's it's sad that the church has had to catch up to the environmental movement when we should have been leading it. And then maybe we could have kept it in a better focus. Even at the end of Jonah, we hear of how God's compassion extends even to the animals. It says, the Lord said to Jonah, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and quickly died. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for that great city? Why is it even mentioned? God says, I care for Nineveh. Yes, it's got 120,000 uh, people in it that don't know, then um, uh, they're living in spiritual darkness. It's, always, it's also got a bunch of animals in it. And you were so eager for me to just smite it all. Even the animals God cares about. God's plan is not an escape from physical creation, it's a plan of Rescue, renewal, recreation, creation that involves bodily resurrected humans, a renewed earth, not to mention the animals. The incarnation matters. The incarnation, understanding the incarnation and understanding Christmas will affect everything in regards to how you read scripture, how you engage with creation, how you engage with God, how you engage with one another. In fact, I think it's quite fitting that the incarnation of God, the birth of Jesus, happens in a stable. See, what, what is, is the natural reaction that we think of when we hear stable? I even noticed it in the song that Paul and Juliet sang. Um, dirty. Stinky. Smelly, noisy, it's a barn. But maybe we see stables that way because we've got the wrong glasses on. We haven't been thinking with incarnational eyes. We're still seeing with unhealthy spiritual eyes. Rather than with restored embodied eyes. Because the Incarnation says that blood, birth, and bodies are good. The Incarnation says that cows and sheep and donkeys are good. That shepherds and ordinary stinky workers are good. That husbands and wives and babies, even crying babies, are good. That hay and mangers and swaddling clothes are good. So I think Jesus born in a stable is quite appropriate. It's an affirmation of God's good creation. When we look at the stable and we look at it, it's so earthy. And yet Jesus came right into that and embraced it. It wasn't, ooh, that's bad stuff. I don't want to be tainted with that. He embraced it. One of the things that I enjoyed, I almost wore my Habitat for Humanity shirt today too, I saw Pastor Jerry did. Um, The perspective of how this all changed, I I said to my wife when I was leaving on Wednesday to work for Habitat for Humanity, I, I said to her, I get to be incarnational today. I get to get wet with rain, use a hammer and hit nails and put wood together and build a house and um, just use my hand. this is incarnational stuff. It's working with the stuff that God has made and reforming it and fitting it in such a way that I'm able to enact what it means to be made in God's image and to bless other people. And for somebody like me that works mostly in my head all the time, it's nice to be a little incarnational and I need to be more incarnational in my life. God likes stuff. Martin Luther tried to remind us this so much with his whole idea of the priesthood of believers that even the everyday father who's changing diapers and and all of these everyday things is good. It's what God created the world to be like and if we don't start embracing that that's good, we're really not going to like eternity because eternity is going to include all of that kind of stuff. It's not going to be Care Bears sitting on clouds playing harps. It's going to be earthy, And good, where we can get our hands dirty and we can interact and work with God's good creation with real human bodies that smell, see, taste, touch. The incarnation shows us that to be human is to be embodied, Uh, that God's creation is good, it affirms that. And the incarnation is the beginning of a restoration that doesn't involve just humans, but is going to affect all of creation, as all creation is groaning and waiting for it, including the animals. And when we understand the implications of this, when we understand the implications of Christmas, God becoming flesh, we realize then that it is quite Christian. And I would also say, because I think they're one and the same, it's quite human to enjoy the feeling of warm clothes, fresh out of a dryer, pressed against your face. The next time you feel that, you can say, this is what it means to be human, to be Christian, to enjoy that hot apple pie with vanilla ice cream smothered on top of it. It's to celebrate. God's creation. To enjoy listening to children play and splash in the ocean. There's something very human and Christian about that. To enjoy smelling the realness of an authentic Christmas tree. To enjoy watching the formation of clouds or sunsets. touching, tasting, hearing, smelling, seeing, to begin, just to begin, it's a foretaste now, to begin to experience all of our senses in interacting with God's creation now. So that we're not completely overwhelmed when we get the full dose of it in the resurrection. Jesus came to save us from sin and disease that erodes our senses so that we can in anticipation live fully embodied human lives for the rest of eternity in God's restored creation. It's hard to say it any better and I think this is a perfect quote to close. Irenaeus' wonderful quote The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Even the picture says it. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to be fully alive, fully able to embrace the flesh and blood body of who you are and the physical creation all around you that God puts you in and to be God's image bearers and his stamp upon his creation and part of the process of his rescuing of his creation from sin and disease. The things that steal, kill, and destroy. Instead, the glory of God is a human being that means an embodied person who's fully alive. It's my hope and prayer for each and every one of you, for myself as well. We begin to understand and embrace the incarnation of Christmas. Let's pray. God, help us to count our blessings. We thank you for the jobs and the work we have to do. We thank you that we have health and strength and the skill to do it. We thank you for our homes and for those who are very near and dear to us. We thank you for the friends whom we will meet today as we travel, at work, at meals, and when our work is done. We thank you for everything in which we find pleasure, for games, for books, For pictures, for movies, for play, for music, for dancing, for talks with friends, and for times with those who are more than friends and whom we love. We thank you for Jesus and for the promise that he is always with us. Help us in that promise to find our inspiration to goodness and our protection from sin. Hear this Our prayer for your love's sake. Amen.